Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Their safety supervisor agreed he was driving recklessly, but there was the big dot by the safety supervisor saying recklessly, and that's, of course, what flipped him to go from a D to an F. If you're driving recklessly and you give him a D, what's it take to get an F? Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing this afternoon? I am good, Steve. I have got, I'm glad we're doing the podcast now because this is the fun part of my day because I'm following it up with an HOA meeting. Oh, well, I mean, I, I would imagine you would say that would be the fun part of your day because everybody knows HOAs. That's the way to go. So, so so much to look forward to. And everyone tells you, just skip it. No one goes to those. And that's exactly the problem. This is the third one that we've had this year because we can't get a quorum. So <laughs> I can't miss it. It, it. it is going to be riveting. And I expect you to give a nice long presentation. Yeah. I mean, it's so that's how that's why I had to tell everybody right now that I was going because I know people are really interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, it's a great way to start out a podcast. Riveting stuff. HOA meetings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, well, let's welcome our guests. We have two fantastic guests from Houston, Texas. We have Randy and Alex, uh, well, Randy Soros and Alex Farias Soros, uh, husband and wife trial lawyers from Houston who uh, are, we're going to talk about uh, their fantastic case. They're both with the uh, Soros Law Firm down in Houston. And uh, you can look them up at SorosLaw.com. That's S-O-R-R-E-L-S law.com. Uh, Randy and Alex, how are you doing today? Right. We are so glad to have you guys on. And, uh, and I guess, you know, we, maybe before we even talk about the, uh, talk about the, the trial, I mean, we know a little bit about it at our firm, but, um, how is it, uh, a husband and wife working together? Is that everything go well? I'll let her go first. I, I see, I see every, both, both of them have a giant smile on their face. So that means it's, it's great. Uh, you know, so far, so good. Um, we have a little uh, non-work time now, uh, a lot less work time um, since we started the firm just about a year ago. But, uh, you know, yeah. that's the cost of um, building up a new firm. And we've had yeah. great success so far. So, it's working and maybe one day we'll be able to take a vacation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you certainly started your firm uh, in, with a bang with just a uh, tremendous verdict on a, on a, uh, a devastating case, but uh, fantastic work. And, uh, and we're, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I want to first uh, tell everybody about you so they can, they can know who we're talking to. I'll start with Randy. So Randy is a quadruple board certified uh, plaintiff's lawyer, trial lawyer, uh, also the former uh, president of the Texas State Bar. Uh, Randy, when I looked at you, you it looks like you've been the president of almost every, the Houston Bar, the Houston Trial Lawyers Association, uh, the Texas Association of Civil Trial and Appellate Specialists, and uh, and that's not even all of the groups that you've been uh, a president of. Uh, also named as a top 100 super lawyer, named as the best lawyer. Uh, Best Lawyers Plaintiff Lawyer of the Year for 2022, uh, won the State Bar's President's Award and the Distinguished uh, Afford Distinguished Service to Lawyers of Texas, and the Woodrow B. Seals Outstanding Young Lawyers of Houston Award. Um, and uh, obviously, if anybody looks up Randy, they can see that he's not only tried just a number of, uh, of you know, great cases, 
but spends a lot of his time teaching, speaking, writing uh, about trial strategy and about how to uh, how to practice law and try cases all over the country. Great to have you on, Randy. No, thanks for having us. And, Randy, uh, wait, hold on, ahead. Randy. Yeah. I have to ask you while we're on the topic, and Steve mentioned how many different leadership positions you've served in um, on your various associations and memberships. And, uh, you know, as I serve on, uh, you know, various sort of ex- executive committees and stuff now, although n- never as president, and I find it such a challenge, you know, especially when you get slammed at work or slammed on your cases, um, you know, you can end up feeling like, oh, why did I sign up for all this extra stuff? Can you just talk about um, how you make it work? Why, you know, how you've done it and continue to do it and, and why it's important? Well, I think you have to have, you know, a balance in your practice, not only of work, but of giving back to, in this case, our profession, whether you give back to our profession or to the homeowners association, if you sit on their board <laughs> or, you know, if you're doing the opera or your kid's school, whatever it is. I think there's a there's a place uh, for us on this earth to not only have our job and our family, but to have something to give back to make the world or the profession a better place. And that's how you do it. You just uh, set aside some time and get it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it, it definitely can be stressful at times, uh, and um, it can be difficult. But uh, but it's a balance. I mean, and, and generally, you know, you find that uh, the busy people are more effective. So um, stay yeah. busy. Yeah. Um, it's I, that whole I, I have, balance thing, Steve, yeah, that's not my exactly. forte. <laughs> that's right. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah, I, I have to point out something before we move on to Alex, because I recognize it because my daughter is a gamer. But Randy, it looks like you're sitting in a gaming chair. Is that is that a gaming chair that you're sitting it, it in? It is. And the reason why is because I sit in it so much. I figured those people have studied what's comfortable and not comfortable. Right. Yeah, you know, they figured it out. So forget how the uh, executive office chair uh, looks. I want to go how the the chair I sit in the most feels. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, my, my daughter who loves gaming, she, uh, she has one of those chairs. I'll never forget when she asked me, I was like, you want a chair? That's what you want. She's like, yes, I would like a gaming chair. I was like, all right, well, that's a, that's a good birthday present. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So, so Randy, two thumbs up. You, would you endorse it? Yeah, it's good for me. I don't, yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's, it's, a, it, it's good. It's, I've had a lot of chairs over the years and I like this one the best. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. They're definitely comfortable chairs. Well, Alex uh, Perea Soros uh, has been a partner in the Soros Law Firm since tw- January of 2021. And as I st- stated, uh, I mean, just a great way to start off your law firm. Uh, but she is, I- I'm not sure what you call it, but if you're a undergrad in law school of uh, University of Miami Hurricanes, does that make you a double cane? Is that what they say? I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> in, in Georgia, they call them double dogs. So I was just wondering if uh, if yeah. there was a similar terminology, but both undergrad and law school at the University of Miami uh, after law school was a law clerk for, uh, well, now I, I can't read my own writing, but I think it was Judge Bohm. Is that it? Uh, of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court? Yeah, uh, U.S. Bankruptcy Court, and then um, and then I for the Texas Supreme Court, yeah, for with Judge Medina, it looks like, uh, and uh, went into big law practice uh, before um, joining Randy and the Soros uh, law firm, and during that had a three hundred million dollar arbitration award, um, and is active in both the Texas Bar Foundation and the Houston Young Lawyers Foundation um, as a board member. So, uh, Alex and Randy, we're so happy to have you guys on. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so this case uh, is just a, a tragic case, and there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, not only, um, not only from what 
uh, you know, what went on in this specific case. But as I understand it, Texas has been going through some uh, changes in their laws that didn't affect your case, but might affect cases like this in the future. Is that right? Yeah, there are some concerns that, you know, people want to put caps on all damages. We have caps on certain damages and medical malpractices is the most uh, notorious. Uh, and, and hopefully people see the inequities of caps and let juries make decisions and let judges, you know, uh, review those decisions and correct them if they think they need to be corrected. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the name of this case is uh, Cecilia Cruz and Ulysses Cruz versus uh, Allied Aviation Fueling Company of Houston and Reginald Willis. It was tried in October of 20, uh, 2021 in Harris County. That's Houston, Texas. Uh, and it involved a, um, a, a, um, an accident that happened on September 7, 2019 at 7.30 a.m. So Yuli Cruz was a wing walker for United Airlines. And as I understand it, a wing walker uh, basically is it's the guy you see holding uh, the bright wands with the with the bright yellow jacket on or orange. Jacket. I can't remember if it's orange or yellow, but um, but but very well lit because they're walking alongside these air, uh, airplanes as they're being backed out from the gates and essentially walks behind the wing uh, as they're being backed out and uh, to make sure that nothing uh, gets close to it or, you know, make sure that the plane, the uh, airplane is not going to come in contact with anything. And uh, unfortunately for, for Yuli, uh, there was a uh, Mr. Willis was driving a van for Allied Aviation Fueling Company. Uh, and uh, sounds like he came around a corner and um, at least he claims was blinded by the sunlight, didn't see Yuli and basically just ran um uh, right into him and threw him several um, yards or feet in uh, in the air and and um, and catastrophically injured Yuli. Yuli was a uh, paraplegic, and uh, it sounds like at least initially they were able to stabilize his spine so that he was didn't become a quadriplegic. But then two days later, uh, suffered a stroke which immobilized his uh, right arm. And uh, and basically, um, he lost the use of the of the right half of his brain. Um, and just, uh, I mean, uh, terrible injuries. Um, and and as I understand, Yuli uh, lost the ability to speak. Is that right? In addition to being a paraplegic, pretty much. Um, he he can say a few words at a time, um, but he can't really say full sentences. And right, his cognitive abilities are severely have been severely impaired. And so in this case, and we'll talk a lot about it as as we go, but um, the first thing I think I said to both Randy and Alex when we were getting ready is this case almost sounds indefensible, but the um, Allied Aviation certainly tried to defend it, uh, sounded like they defended it vigorously, uh, and really a huge part of their defense was just to try and blame Yuli uh, for what happened. I think they claimed um, that he... uh, I think there are specific lines or something that, that you're supposed to walk inside of that he might, that at least they were claiming that he got outside of the lines or into the area where the, the van was driving. Uh, the jury obviously didn't believe that. Um, and the verdict was returned where not only did they not find Yuli at fault at all, uh, they put 70% of the, the fault on Allied and 30% of the fault on Will on Mr. Willis. And um, the total verdict 
this is economic and non-economic damages was 352,772,000. Included in that was a loss of consortium um, verdict for more than $25 million dollars. Uh, for uh, Cecilia Cruz and then uh, loss of uh, parental consor- consortium verdict for the children, I think it was Shane and Angelo, of more than $20 million uh, in there. So, I mean, you you know, not only is this just a tremendous verdict from the, the damages that were obtained on behalf of, of Mr. Cruz, but you generally don't hear loss of consortium uh, verdicts that large. Um, so, uh, I mean, just tremendous work. Um, I, so again, a total verdict of 352,772,000. And I guess, you know, where, you know, might be a good place to start off, uh, Randy and Alex is, you know, it, it, what we were given as far as the materials was, was your closing. So I didn't get to see what, uh, the closing was of the defense. And I should point out that the, the, uh, lawyer that defended this case for, um, Allied Aviation is a very well-known um, uh, lawyer who uh, does a lot of criminal work uh, all over the country, has represented a lot of athletes. I think he's representing Deshaun Watson right now, uh, the quarterback for the Houston Texans on some uh, sexual harassment allegations. Uh, that's Rusty Harden. Uh, so a, a very uh, well-known and well-respected trial lawyer. Uh, so not only did you uh, you know, have a defendant that was vigorously fighting, but a lawyer who uh, has been around a lot of courtrooms and, and has done well in his career. Yeah, you know, the thing about it is, is uh, the, the national firm of Jackson Walker started the case defending it originally, and they used a, a technique that people have probably read called nuclear verdicts, and it's a from a guy named Tyson out in California. And we picked up on those techniques as their witnesses started to be deposed. And uh, Jackson Walker developed the case for about a year and a half or so. And then they brought in Rusty Harden and Rusty Harden and Associates. And he is uh, an excellent lawyer, one of the best lawyers in the country and and was uh, fun to watch from the other side, even though we were taking the pounding when he was giving it out. Right. Um, uh, he was he's a really good lawyer, but he had to inherit that nuclear verdicts uh, defense and he had to do with it what he had, what best he could. And. Uh, We agreed that the case should seem indefensible, but in the end, they really argued heavily. Either it was all Mr. Cruz's fault, our client's fault, or at least 50-50, and that's what he argued in closing, uh, 50-50 and give him $24 million in damages. And luckily, the jury saw it our way and not his way. Yeah. um, So I'm not familiar with exactly what the nuclear verdicts uh, defense tactic is. I mean, is it it basically a, you know, to try and keep the the verdicts down by saying don't go you know outrageous on the on a verdict for Mr. Uh, Mr. Cruz, which I mean again you're talking about somebody who's not only a paraplegic but then uh, suffered severe brain damage uh, and uh, lost the use of his right arm. So I'm not sure. I mean, it, it, as you pointed out so uh, so well in your closing, Randy, that you know I'm not sure what amount of money anybody would want to take to suffer those types of damages, um, you know, whether it's 400 million or 800 million or, or something even more. I mean, so, um, but, you know, I'm explain a little bit what the, what the nuclear verdicts tactic is. Sure. So Mr. Tyson uh, developed this theory that if you're the most reasonable person in the room and you admit uh, and accept some responsibility, then jurors might let you off, or at least you'll let you off for less than, you know, what they what they should return. Nuclear verdicts, they defined as one over $10 million. 
And so he gives a series of tips and techniques that says, uh, you know, here's how you can control the damages. Um, I think the plaintiff's lawyers have picked up on it. His book is easy enough to read. And there's some counter punches to nuclear verdicts. And we think we developed and strategized and, and had those counter punches ready. Uh, and our idea was presenting uh, what the case was about. And, and people say, well, how can you even ask for that much money? And the reality is, is we have a family member who has not dissimilar injuries. And we've seen it day in and day out. And when you believe and know what the damages should be in your heart and your soul, uh, you have no problem delivering that message to the jury. And I think the jury picks up on that, that uh, the damages that they delivered in that case were righteous. They were just uh, and and a penny less would have been injustice, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's interesting about the nuclear verdicts. I mean, I, I understand the concept of being the most reasonable person in the room. And, it, and I've seen it work very well for some uh, defense lawyers where they basically come in and accept responsibility and then just, you know, argue to the jury that, you know, they just want to make sure there's a fair verdict and it can be done quite effectively. I, I, I would imagine, at least in this case, that not only do you have just catastrophic injuries that are not like your typical uh, you know, case where that might work, but also the fact that once they start blaming, um, you know, Yuli Cruz, you know, somebody who can't really speak up for himself, um, who, who who's not there to say no, this is what really happened. And you had, as I understand, you had video uh, of the incident. Um, that that seems to me that it, maybe it, it's hard to come off as the most reasonable or or uh, person in the room when you start taking a position like that. Well, I think accepting, I should have said, accepting responsibility and accepting liability are two different things. And that's what Tyson points out. Don't ever accept liability, just accept responsibility. And this instance, the driver said, I accept responsibility for driving the vehicle. And that's what he accepted responsibility for. The video um, we felt uh, helped us. They obviously felt it helped them. We both had focus group the case. So we have a good understanding of what a focus jury would think. Uh, one interesting tidbit is one of the focus jurors that heard their case in our city of six million, you know, community, one of their focus jurors found their way to our focus group as well. So we learned a lot from that focus member uh, and the damages we were talking about were not out of the ballpark of what focus jurors were delivering. Uh, but uh, each focus jury that we know of found the the truck driver responsible, the van driver responsible and and uh, we did not know if they'd come up with something new for trial. And the best they could do is argue that our our client got into a position he shouldn't have been in and did not have situational awareness. And the last thing they said was, is that he was simply too tired because he worked a lot the day before and didn't get much sleep for the couple of days before. And that ended up backfiring as well. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now 
Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. If you watch the video, and, and I did watch the video as part of um, the video that y'all did for mediation that I, I think we'll probably talk more about later, especially um, as it relates to damages in the case. But... Um, you know, that's one of the shortcomings of a podcast is, you know, at least while we talk about it, we can't show the video, um, which was so great. And I think also in terms of showing that this wasn't a nuclear verdict and that $10 million would be nowhere near enough to compensate what had happened to this family um, was apparent in the first, I think, 30 seconds of that video. But putting that aside, the video of just the of the incident itself um, it, it is really, I mean, I guess I could see them looking at it and, and trying to argue that, I don't know, I guess that Yuli wasn't, I, I don't, I don't really know because when I watched it, I thought the truck was going, looked like it was going very fast. Um, he looked very visible to me. Now, again, like the camera's not in the angle where the sun, whatever was happening with the sun, where you would see it. Um, you know, it was sort of like a video. Like if you imagine if you're sort of watching the plane from the gate or something, that's the angle. Um, and so, you know, he's kind of walking towards the the back of the plane and this truck is coming off from sort of the left side of the, the, the footage of the camera and just like, I, I don't know. I, I don't see that video being being good if you're defending the truck driver because it just looks like he's very visible the whole time and the truck driver is just going way too fast under the circumstances. 
Yeah, Alex, you comment on yeah, that. I mean, I think one of their positions was, well, Yuli should have been more situationally aware. That's a term they use or a theme they use throughout the trial. So they thought, well, Yuli, like any other person, um, should be aware of their surroundings. And so um, although the, the plane did have the right of way at that point, it was backing up. Um, they thought, well, he should have turned. He should have seen him. Had he seen him, he could have jumped out of the way or done a somersault or done something to not be injured. And so that was one of their theories was he was too tired. He'd worked too much. So he wasn't situ situationally aware. And he basically put himself in danger by not looking to his left. Um, How much did y'all have to dig into... Um, you know, cause like when you sit on a plane and look out at what's happening, like while you're just waiting for the plane to take off and all the bags are being loaded and those little trucks with the baggage carts attached to them are flying around and the fuel trucks are driving around. And, um, it seems kind of, um, chaotic out there to somebody who doesn't know how things work. How much did y'all really have to dig into finding out, you know, kind of what the rules and procedures and who yields to who and everything um, out there. Well, that was one of the great things. The universal rule at all airports across the world is you have to yield to planes that are moving. And that makes sense. So this particular van, it's a fueling van um, that was carrying a supervisor. Um, the, the, the plane was pushing back. There are flashing lights, beacons that are on the plane. You can see it pushing back. You can see the wing walkers out there. His obligation as every other moving vehicle was to come to a stop and he didn't. And his excuse was the sun got in his eyes. Not only did he not see the wing walker, but he didn't even see this huge plane backing out. <laughs> and so um, we developed the theory and it's really true that the uh, airport itself is its own ecosystem. And the rules that apply there are different than the rules that apply everywhere else because mm -hmm. hundreds of lives are in danger. And he did not miss, hit Mr. Cruz. Frankly, he'd have been heading straight for the plane and would have hit the plane. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's something to think about when you're preparing cases. I know a lot of the your listeners are, are lawyers is what makes your case different? And uh, let's make sure that the focus of the case is on the defendant and his actions and the company and their actions. If it's uh, if there's corporate negligence involved as well. Yeah, this case, uh, you know, you, and you did a really uh, great job with it in the closing was, you know, really sound like it played well for the rules and uh, and how many rules there are out there that uh, that govern this ecosystem, as you put it, um, because uh, because so many dangerous things can happen and things are moving around. And so, you know, things like where they have to use extreme caution, you know, which I thought was great language uh, for you. And, and I guess, you know, in the situational awareness thing, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm imagining that a wing walker's first uh, role is to watch out for the plane and not for everything else, because that's what their job is. So uh, I'm wondering how they, how they, are now saying, well, instead of watching the plane, which is what he was doing, uh, he should have been watching for this van driving, you know, erratically and driving straight towards a plane. Yeah. And, and I think that was, I mean, that was just such a major flaw. I mean, people saw through that. I mean, if you're doing your job, right, your focus 
should be on the plane. And so they were expecting of him something that was inhuman, something that was not reasonable. Um, we, you know, we argued it was not foreseeable that Mr. Willis would not, a person would be driving through the tarmac, not being able to see and blinded by the sun and just, you know, basically potentially running into a plane that wasn't foreseeable. The driver in the situation, that wasn't something Mr. Cruz could have foreseen. Right. So, um, it just, it doesn't make, it makes sense. And it just was not, it was against common sense. Right. Yeah. 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 We use that. She actually used a great line. One of our themes was you have to do your job. And at the airport, if you don't do your job, lives are at stake. And uh, we use that do your job routinely throughout. And as she said, you know, I think the defense would say they were most stunned by the verdict that they didn't put some percentage of fault on Mr. Cruz. But we argued, as you saw in the closing, it's not foreseeable that someone's going to have the sun completely blind him and just keep going and then run off the road, uh, you know, going towards a plane that's pushing back from the from the gate. It's just not foreseeable. And and. Uh, we think the jury did the right thing, finding no fault on our client. And, and uh, we also said that because he couldn't talk, you know, the jury had an obligation for this family to to defend uh, Mr. Cruz. And so his kids know that he didn't cause this to himself. This was someone else who caused this. And, and that was one of the factors. If you're going to talk about uh, loss of consortium for both the wife and the and the kids, it was one of the factors I think weighed heavily on the jury. Yeah, I mean, that is so, you know, and, and we see it all the time in cases where especially, you know, somebody might be, you know, being blamed by the other side that it was that was their fault is part of the reason why they want to be in trial is not only to get compensation, but just to get vindication that what they did was the right thing. And, and you know, and Yuli couldn't speak for himself. So I, it is definitely an important thing for the jury to find you know, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he, he did his job, just like uh, what you were saying, you do your job. He did his job. If everybody else had done their job, this never would have happened. Yeah. And we did a good colloquy and in, in closing, you may have seen that, uh, you know, we said, you know, Mr. Cruz isn't here to, to defend himself, but more importantly, his kids don't understand the story, but now we can fill in the gaps because you're right. He was, he was uh, at the hospital with the, the spinal cord injury, still able to talk. And his wife and his daughter were uh, at Guam at the time. So his son was in the emergency room and he's the last one who family member who had a conversation with Yuli before he was completely uh, incapacitated. And as he said, son, you know, you're going to have to take care of the family. He knew he was paralyzed. You're going to have to kind of be the man and, you know, step up and, and uh, you know, really do your job. And the colloquy we had was that, uh, you know, let's imagine what the conversation is that these people blame you. And the, and the kids said, Dad, we read the transcript. The lawyer blames you for this happening. And the dad says, uh, well, no, son, that's not what happened. I was doing my job following all the rules and regulations. And the kids said, but we saw it in the transcript. Uh, what they said that that you were not you were you were not uh, situationally aware. No, son, I was taking care of the plane. You know, well, well, dad, they said that you should have done A, B and C. And he said, no, son, I did X, Y and Z because that's what the rules require. And it was a pretty powerful moment where in the end, uh, the kids say, well, dad, it sounds to me like you're a hero because you saved the plane. And he, of course, ends and says, 
no, I'm not a hero, uh, kids. I was just doing my job. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I love that. Cause it just, it links up to, you know, both, you know, the jury thinking about the son, the family advocating for their father who can't advocate for himself, but also we talk about it on the show all the time. What happens when you're able to effectively empower the jury, um, you know, to, to be advocates or to feel like what they do is really going to matter. And, and we know that that's always the case with the jury that, that they're so important, but um, sometimes they don't always, you know, get that feeling when they have jury duty. And so when you're able to do that effectively, it's so important. And I, I feel like that part of your closings, you know, served both those roles, right? Cause it's a conversation with the dad and the son, but I feel like the jury's probably thinking too, you know, like, you know, yeah. You know, they're, they're kind of the sun as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and this defense is sort of rubbing salt in the wound that they've already done. I mean, they've already injured Yuli. They've already changed his life. And now, now they're trying to blame him for it. I mean, it just, it's the kind of thing that um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, can, can cause you a lot of stress when you're in trial, but at the same time, it, it, it can just really annoy a jury. Um, and it yeah. seems like, you know, here, uh, the jury saw right through their defense. Yeah, no, they really did. I mean, so there was a, a video that the defense liked so much, um, of, you know, the lot, the, so it was a vehicle service road, right? So that's the road that the truck was driving along and Mr. Cruz was kind of crossing it at that point. So they just kept on focusing in on this line that Mr. Cruz shouldn't have crossed it and that the van didn't cross the, the van wasn't coming across it towards Mr. Cruz. Well, you could see with your own eyes, the van was coming across the line towards the plane and Mr. Cruz. And so their defense team kept on saying, look, the van, it wasn't, you know, wasn't crossing the line. And so later we talked to some of the members of the jury who would speak with us and they said, you know, we saw that when I mean, you could see it with your very own eyes, right? right. I mean, kind of, insulting that they would think that we couldn't see the van was crossing the line. So it just, it became, um, just a, another way, right. Of confusing the issues. And, and also, uh, as we said before, the rule was stop when the plane is backing up. So in actuality, he should have never even been near, you know, Mr. Cruz, he should have stopped as soon as the plane was, you know, the lights were on and it started departing or moving back. Right. Yeah. Cause the plane has to back over that service road. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was clear. Mr. Cruz was where he was supposed to be. Yeah. And, um, we had to pose one of their experts who they ended up not calling, um, a former pilot who, who testified to that. And they ended up not using it him because the testimony was yes, Mr. Cruz was where he was supposed to be at the time. That was his job to be crossing the plane, you know, across that road and further down, um, into the distance. And we used Brandy, uh, we used a really powerful, uh, photo and closing of the plane, how far back the wing walkers actually have to walk the plane back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, and, and related to that point, Alex, one of the things that, um, that I was watching in the video were clips of, um, the driver's deposition, um, at his testimony in the deposition and they were real bad. I mean, and you know, and I know that obviously you're not picking out the stuff that's real good for the defense for the video, but at the same time, 
just based on what I saw, you know, it, it was, I mean, it's just as a plaintiff's lawyer, it's the kind of deposition you're hoping to get. Um, but you know, he was just kind of all over the place, a little bit inconsistent about what he could see and couldn't see. And I'm wondering how much of his, um, deposition testimony and that video in particular, did you all get to use at trial versus how much, um, you know, did you get to impeach him with any of that or, um, was yeah, it? No, that's a great, a great question because the, there were two, de- there were two significant depositions you saw in the video. One was their corporate representative. One was their driver. The corporate representative, we honestly thought could never be better because he and his deposition said, we're at fault. Mr. Cruz is not at fault. And he even gave us gross negligence language towards his driver. And then the driver, as you said, was all over the place, which might uh, anger a jury. You either did it or you didn't do it. And uh, the judge had ruled beforehand, if we were going to play the deposition of the corporate representative, then we could not cross him. Uh, they, they were going to bring him live. We could not cross him live. We'd have to do something with the deposition. So we anguished over that. And we ended up calling him live, thinking that he would change his testimony. And as it turns out, he actually gave even more powerful testimony for us at live. Uh, he was a good witness for us. He was honest. And he said, you know, we did things that we shouldn't have done. And the driver, they tried to clean up. Uh, they called him as their last witness, even though we had called him in trial. And he gave a lot of tearful testimony about his family and his wife who had died and the kids he had raised and how he felt horrible because now he was able to see the full extent of Mr. Cruz's injuries. He felt horrible about this. Um, but one of the key moments was when we asked him to grade his driving that day. And the reason that was a key moment is because their corporate safety representative, uh, we called in our case, we said, we want you to grade his driving for that day. And he said he gave him a D like dog. And our videographer, our tech guy, he said he looked at his watch and 20 minutes later, we got him to change his grade from a D to an F for driving that day for his own driver. So the driver's the last witness. They're calling the last witness. And you know that question's coming and I don't know what they had him ready to say. We said, okay, your safety director gave you an F for your driving. We want you in front of this jury to give yourself a grade for that day. What grade do you give yourself? He paused. He said, I give myself a B, like boy. And after you, you know, that, that that's the way they're going to end the trial. It's not going to go good for them. Yeah. What, uh, I saw something or a reference to it in the closing about um, – the, he after he hit Mr. Cruz, um, that he gets out and makes it sounds like he doesn't try to render aid or see how Mr. Cruz is doing, but just makes two phone calls and then backs the van up. Um, and, and then he said something different at trial. Is that right? W- what happened with that? Well, so. If you saw the video, uh, the, the impact occurs on screen, but the van leaves the screen from the impact afterwards. And but there are pictures taken and the pictures taken afterwards show the van clearly over the line as Alex was talking about. So their story was that um that he backed up the van to get out of the way from EMS shortly after this. He said he made two phone calls. He got back and he called his supervisors, two supervisors, got back in the van and backed it up. The tape ran for about six minutes. So about Five minutes of that would be uh, watching our guy laying on the ground. But the other five minutes, they never anticipated because we were going to prove that that was a lie and we were ready for that because he never backed up the van. And they were smart. They said, well, you can't see the van on the screen. Can you? No. 
We got them though, because you could see the shadow on the screen. Remember the sun was coming from, from the uh, east. So you could see the van shadow the whole time. And we were able to prove that he never backed up the van because his shadow never moved. So they changed their story to, well, maybe we didn't back it up uh, within the five minutes. We backed it up after the five minutes. And the jury saw through that and said, no, that's not true either. They're just making stuff up. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this. But now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. I want to talk a bit because, um, you know, obviously there was a, a ton of work put into the damages part of this case. And this, uh, you know, we haven't heard much about this family Talk a little bit about how you put the damages case together. And, and then I guess also about uh, what Yuli was like. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know, the unfortunate thing about cases like this is you don't get to know your client uh, before this happened and what what he was like before that, other than through, you know, other people talking about. It. But talk about you know, how you put that together with the family and, and what uh, Yuli was like before this happened. So I. Uh... I kind of dealt with the family more in preparing them for, for the trial. I also prepared um, our life care planner and then the other experts on damages. So first, Yuli, um, I've spoke with his sister, really good friends. So he was originally from the Philippines and they moved to Guam. Um, everyone said he was such a hard worker. So he initially started working at McDonald's, then uh worked his way up to uh, working for Continental, which turned into, you know, United. Um, And then worked as, you know, he'd work overtime, you know, essentially making almost or more than $100,000 a year as a wing walker. Um, Him and his wife, Cecilia, were, um, you know, they were both the loves of their lives. And um, and they lived in in Guam together. And their, their hopes and dreams were to move to the United States 
to create a better life for themselves and for their children. They wanted their children to eventually go to college in the United States. So that was Yuli's goal mostly. Um, and it was Cecilia, a nurse, a registered nurse. Um, she, you know, supported her husband in, in those dreams. Um, so once there was a, some availability in San Diego to work for United um, or Continental United, um, he moved um, and then later was transferred to Houston. But, you know, he was a hard worker. Um, all of his friends said the guy just loved to work um, and he was a good person, family, you know, family oriented um, and his children and, you know, just a really humble, humble family, great family. Um, <clears throat> so we worked with, with the kids, 15 and 17. So it's Shane and Angelo, um, and then Cecilia and, and the thing about them being of, you know, Asian descent or of culture, you know, they, they put it upon themselves to, to, you know, take care of family in need. Um, there's this big responsibility that they feel to care for, you know, for Mr. Cruz now, um, and being a registered nurse. Cecilia has really taken over the job of essentially coordinating all of his care and always being present and, and, and they're monitoring what's going on and helping and, and doing things that, you know, no wife would hope that she'd ever have to do for her husband. So at trial, she talked about, you know, in the morning, there's a bowel program where they have to put, you know, their fingers up his rectum and help him use the restroom and all of those things. And the kids are there. They're all in the same home, um, assisting and helping as needed. Um, and the son has taken over, you know, the role of father in their household. So um, the testimony was very powerful from all of them. Um, and I think, you know, the jury just fell in love with them because they just, you know, they kept the moms or Cecilia kept on saying we're a simple family, but they really are just a wonderful family. And, um, you know, just so tragic, uh, this incident, um, our life care planner, um, was Dr. Sasha Iverson. Um, so she was, uh, responsible for creating this life care plan that was essentially, uh, $30 million, um, in future medical, um, care, um, which incorporated, you know, different therapies, um, medical supplies, things like that. Um, because up, up until the point of the trial, his medical costs had already exceeded $2 million. Um, you know, he was hospitalized for over a year after the incident. Um, so it was, you know, it's expensive. Um, so she did a good job of kind of, you know, validating everything in her plan. Um, and then we worked with an economist out of um, Stanford area. Um, and then finally, um, a neurosurgeon out of uh, Stanford as well to talk about this pre-existing condition that Mr. Cruz had called Moya Moya disease. Um, the reason we found him initially was because, as I said, so, so Yuli or Mr. Cruz had this condition where it made him potentially susceptible to strokes. Um, so we, we knew that they would probably... Uh, the defense would probably use that right to minimize damages and say, well, this Mr. Cruz would have suffered a stroke anyway. So we hired uh, this cerebral vascular surgeon who, who specializes in this very rare disease um, who talked about the disease, but Mr. Cruz actually was asymptomatic 
um, for all of his life. So the testimony was, look, he had this disease, but it wouldn't have really affected him probably. Um, and then, and then, uh, he also talked about, you know, as a, this renowned neurosurgeon, um, kind of the, the future for stroke victims and the possibilities, right. For, um, recuperating from brain damage. Um, so yeah, that's one I, thing I'll jump in on that. Yeah. I think that if you're talking about how to influence jurors on from a plaintiff standpoint, you better have some message of hope in there as well. Mm. That, uh, <laughs> that with the right medical care, um, that he's going to live close to his life expectancy. Everybody agreed they knocked about seven years off his life expectancy, but there was hope for him to have improvement of life over the next 22 years. Uh, that said, uh, we used a, a day in the life video that we we narrated through four different witnesses. So the juror really, jurors really understand what his day in the life was from the morning, these bowel, pro, bowel pro programs to getting him to eat, to trying to exercise him, physical therapy, occupational therapy. And I'll give Alice credit. She was in charge of getting all the damage witnesses together. And, and obviously she uh, got everybody lined up, got the family members lined up. And, um, you know, the jurors listened intently. One of our jurors took three notebooks of notes and told us afterwards that she dreamed about this case at night, would wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it and thought, it affected her so profoundly she would never forget her experience on the jury in this case and what happened to this family. One of the things that um, that I noticed in the video that I watched that I'm, I'm wondering whether um, Cecilia said this at trial because I thought it was so powerful in the video was, you know, she was just talking in general about about her relationship with her husband. And um, the great thing about that video was that you all had some video of the family before Yuri's accident. And, and you could kind of get a sense of what their dynamic was like, a bunch of pictures. And, you know, of course, that's something we usually try to do in cases. But one of the things that she said that really jumped out to me was, you know, she was talking about about the difference now. And, and, and I, you know, she was, I think, very, at least in that the video that I saw, you know, very understated, um, you know, not very emotional, um, at least outwardly. Um, and I think that almost made it a little more moving. One of the things that she, she said was she was just describing that, um, that at one point she just asked Yuri if he, um, um, I'm sorry, Yuli, not Yuri, um, if he knew who she was, um, you know, she was just describing something else, but she mentioned that, you know, just asking him if he knew who she was. And I just found that absolutely heartbreaking um, just to go from that, you know, that relationship, this family that they've started together to her actually having to ask him that question. Yeah, no, it was it was a tough They when they were when they were in the Philippines and in Guam, when they were married. Um, he worked nights so he could take care of the kids during the day. She worked days so she could take care of the kids at night. This was a, a strong as bond family as you'll ever see. And all of them um, were devastated. Thus the awards. One of the defense arguments in closing, because we had, we did ask for 300 and over $350 million was uh, the defense lawyer said, listen, our system is about fundamental fairness. It's not creating generational wealth. And what these lawyers are doing is trying to create generational wealth. Well, we knew from our personal experience that 
they didn't create generational wealth. They created a generational burden because his mm-hmm. wife was having to take care of, of him. His kids, the second generation had to take care of him. And his kids were old enough that they were going to have kids. So his grandkids were going to have to be into that burden as well. Uh, and that's one thing that we struck back with in, in uh, rebuttal. They created a generational burden. And the jury did not listen to a word that they said, the other side said, as far as damages go, not a word. Yeah, I, I, I saw, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Alex. I just saw that part of the argument. And I thought you handled that so well with the uh, the generational burden. And, I, and it was just a really great way. And, and in just the descriptions of what the children and and, uh, and uh, Cecilia had to go through and just caring for Yuli on a day-to-day basis and how, you know, this person who, uh, you know, is their their father and, and, and hero and person they look up to and now has been put in this state where they're changing his diaper and uh, it's just, uh, just devastating. Was, sorry, Alex, go ahead. And yet Mr. Cruz himself, although he has, cog- you know, his cognition or cognitive abilities have been impaired, he does understand what's going on. And we've had the privilege of being with him and, you know, he cries when his kids, you know, were help- talking to us about, you know, the trial or pre- prepping them for trial, but, you know, he's fully aware of what's going on. And and that's just, you know, he's suffering. How much, um, did you have, uh, Yuli in the courtroom and, and, um, you know, and, and sort of demonstrate his injuries and, and, and present him to the jury? Yeah. So we, we used a clinical verdict approach. We told the jury we were going to be very clinical in nature and we didn't bring him to trial at all. Not okay. one minute in, in the courtroom. They did see his through the day of life. Uh, they saw two to three hours uh, it was narrated by his morning caregiver, uh, his physical therapist, his occupational therapist, and then his wife, who was the nurse. And, you know, she was our our star witness on damages. And she was able to narrate the most because he requires 24-7 care. And, and when caregivers show up, that's great. But as in all jobs, they don't always show up. And so she would have to take the, the role of that person mm. and, um we said we just we wanted we presented the case very clinically and we asked for a clinical verdict. We didn't try to throw emotion into the case. We asked them to focus on the facts, uh, on the injuries, on what the witnesses said, and the jury delivered. Yeah, it, it's uh, and we've actually talked on this show about this approach uh, uh, as well as as far as you know how you talk to the jury about how a case like this gets brought, but you uh, talking about this the clinical um you know uh bring bringing this in a clinical manner you know basically the, the amount of investigation you had to go through you know th- and then proving that there you know there were violations of rules by the other side and then uh you know finding that there was causation i mean I, it was just a very nice way to lay out um the ver- lay out what you had done in preparing this case for trial and to show how much work goes into um, you know, making sure that you've met every burden that you're supposed to. And um, and I really like the way that was laid out for them. Yeah, you know, we we studied a lot. Both of us were love to be students and we're still students of the of the practice. And, you know, West Coast, Brian Panish, a guy named Dan, Am- Dan Ambrose, he has uh, he has uh, put together a great organization called Trial Lawyers University. And they uh, they. Uh, educate uh, plaintiffs lawyers. Keith Mitnick, you know, is is a mm. is one of the educators. Nick Rowley, 
um, Sean Claggett. There's people across the nation that we study and we read. Mark Lanier in Houston, maybe the best lawyer in the country. Um, you know, so we studied because when they brought Rusty Harden on, you know, there were some horror stories we heard, such as after other trials, <laughs> jurors would want to take pictures with him. That's how good he is. And he does represent Deshaun Watson and James Harden and every athlete in Houston that gets in trouble is going to call him. Uh, that's just who he is. He's a local personality. He has the most airtime, the most press time. And we had to deal with that in Vordire uh, through the rest of the trial. And as you saw me say in closing, and he gave a great closing argument in rebuttal. I said, this guy is a great lawyer, but he's not a magician. Let's stay yeah. focused on the facts. Well, yeah, not only that, I love the way, you know, because you had gone through and described how you had these 14 witnesses, all who supported your side of the case. So it was 14 to zero. And that as great as Rusty Harden was, he's working with zero. And so zero plus zero still equals zero. And uh, I, I really like that, uh, that analogy. We use that for anchoring, obviously. We're trying the way the Texas jury verdict is, is they have to apportion liability. And we kept saying zero on Yuli, zero on Yuli, zero on Yuli. And, uh, you know, they, they, the jury understood that, but that's consistent with what the facts were too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, Alex spoke a little bit about speaking with the jurors. Um, what else did they, uh, were you able to learn from them afterwards in, in speaking with some of the jurors of the, uh, of the case? Oh, so one a woman from England, um, told us that, and we, I think we knew she, uh, she grew up with a paraplegic father. Um, and she, you know, she, she really wanted to be an advocate for those children, especially because she's personally had, you know, gone through living in a household with, with somebody in a similar condition to Mr. Cruz. Um, we, we found out that the, so the, the verdict was not unanimous, um, and I think the one woman who did not want to join in the verdict um, kind of wanted to just place, you know, liability on everybody, including our client. Um, um, so we found that out. Uh, trying to think. I'll say best about the lady from uh, England. But in Vordire, she did admit that her father was a paraplegic. And as you as a plaintiff's lawyer, you, know, you have to decide, do we take that? Do we take that juror? Because they grew up without receiving any type of recovery or do we take them because they know what the kids would go through. And we use Robert Hirshhorn as our jury consultant. He's excellent. And he's, he earned his money on this one because he said, I have a great feeling about her. She's going to know what the family went through. And I think she's going to, to be someone you want on the jury. Well, the other side obviously could have struck her as well, and they may have been thinking the other way, which is she'll be a low money uh, juror because she didn't get money for that. As it turns out, she was the one who said in the end, I made sure those kids were well compensated because no one knows how bad it's going to be for them except for me, and it's going to be bad for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Randy, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I saw it in the in the closing, was you talked about during your cross-examination that you use boards and that you have these dots. And I wanted to see if you could uh, describe what you do with your demonstratives and what you do with your boards uh, during cross that you were describing to the jury there. Yeah. So what we did was we, we created two boards. We created uh, an investigation board, our checklist board, which would be somewhat addressing all the defense arguments. And we got a board that 
that were all of the violations. There were how many violations were there, Alex? 17 or 17 or 18 violations that we had put together that various witnesses had talked about. And so when we called their four witnesses, four main witnesses up on the stand, we went through each one and we used a dot, a color code for each person. So if the person says, uh, Mr. Mr. Willis failed to yield the right of way to the plane, well, everybody had to agree to that. So there was four dots by that one. We even got to, you know, he was driving recklessly. Their safety supervisor agreed he was driving recklessly. So there weren't four dots because Mr. Willis would not agree he was driving recklessly. But there was the big dot by the safety supervisor saying recklessly. And that's, of course, what flipped him to go from a D to an F. Because, you know, if we, so we said, if you're driving recklessly, you give him a D. What's it take to get an F? Right. And, <laughs> right. and, and he goes, OK, I'll give him an F. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's one of those things. And the dots were used. To prove our case, they were, oh, the boards could be flashed up at various times. And they were remembrance devices, memory devices for the jurors to say, I don't have to trust my memory. I'm going to trust the dots. And so we held it up in closing. The dots showed what they showed. And the other side had nothing to rebut it, uh, rebut those dots against. And, and so basically you would fill out or put these dots up on the board as you were doing your cross-examination. Right. We would stand yeah. up with the dots and, and with each witness uh, we'd put uh, the um, the dot and their name next to it. And, and so the jurors uh, were able to easily see this. Now, we're dealing with COVID, so our jurors were very spread out. Um, the jurors sat where the audience would sit. The witness sat in the witness box. And so we were our backs were to the jury half the time. And we had to, to juggle the, the logistics of a COVID courtroom as well. We tried a case earlier in the year with Roger Clement's son and godson in uh, February of of that year it was a it was a great start to the firm, but this wasn't the great start. This was the great uh, second start. We <laughs> right. tried a case in February, and we used some similar techniques. And on a very low offer, the jury gave us three point two four million dollars for Roger Clement's son and godson, who were uh, in a in a bar uh, a bar scuffle. Uh, and then, of course, we had lots of time because of COVID to hone our skills. And in October, we were ready to go. Yeah. Well, I, I love that idea with the dots because it's I mean, it, for, first of all, I feel like it's so effective anytime you can as you're going through a witness, um, you know, whether it's a simple checklist or, or you know, list of bullets you're going to go over that you've written on a note and a, um, a flip chart, you know, as you're going or whether it's something you have kind of ahead of time, something that's interactive when the witness is talking, I feel like helps so much as far as the jury retains, knows where we're going, retains what happened. But then to have those dots visually at the end and have the, the weight of everything visually, you know, with your case, I imagine was obviously very effective. <laughs> yeah, we thought through that well. And we we picked points that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a guy who is um, former uh, ATLA or AAJ president. Um, he has this book called Framing Your Case, uh, Framing Your Issues, and and Can't Get Over Issues. Mark Mandel is his yeah. name. And we read that book, and it's pretty powerful. And we use some of that. And of course, we use David Ball's, some of David Ball's techniques. Um, and and it, it was a good mix. If nothing else can be said, um, we studied harder than the other side. And people can study harder than us. All of these systems that these lawyers recommend, they all work at the right time. And mm -hmm. and. I encourage everybody to keep reading and keep growing. 
Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. And uh, I mean, Mark Mandel, as well as uh, several of the other people that you mentioned, uh, teach have all been guests on the show. So uh, uh, we love uh, learning from them. And uh, and you guys uh, certainly put on a, a fantastic trial. Um, is there anything else about the cruise versus allied aviation uh, case that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you want to make sure that our listeners know about? Go ahead, Alex, if you want to go first. Uh, yeah, thanks for putting me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, this was just a lucky case because I mean, we, tr- this is something we just truly believed in. Right. So, I mean, I think people could see that this was something that uh, we're just passionate about. And, and, and like Randy said, with going through living through some similar situation, um, it was easy to ask for that much money. I mean, that's not enough. And I think Randy was quoted in an article. I mean, that wasn't enough in our view for the extent of the damages in this case or injuries in this case. Yeah, the jury could have surely given more. And I think that focus groups help, whether they're informal or formal. We did focus groups and that gave us the power because their offers and they had a $500 million policy. Their offer approached uh, 25 million for it got to 25 million then you know, we got into even higher numbers in, in kind of informal discussions and to turn down that much money when they were claiming, a, you know, they argued for a 50 percent responsibility and 24 million damages, which means our recovery would be 12 million dollars. And, and so their offer, formal offer was more than what they were, what the jury could have done. Uh, but the focus groups told us that the numbers we were talking about were the right numbers. Their focus group, we got information, I'll tell you. Their focus group gave over $100 million. So we knew that the case was going to be a nine-figure case with any jury who would follow the evidence and not be swayed by a terrific lawyer or, you know, outside influences, meaning tort reform or things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, we think we focused on the facts. We think we thought we won every witness. We had a very progressive judge, by the way, who allowed the jurors to ask questions, and that was made it extremely interesting. Uh, he let us give a mini opening statement the second week, a very um, uh, fair and balanced judge who, who understood how jurors want to be involved in the case. And I would encourage people to see if their judge will allow jurors to ask questions. And there's some great techniques there. Uh, but in the end, you know, if when you believe in your case, uh, you shouldn't have any shame or any hesitancy to ask for what you think that case is worth. And the jury's not going to penalize you if they think you're way out of the out of the ballpark uh but more importantly they might just agree with you as they did in this case yeah yeah well um this is just fantastic work and i want to uh, remind everybody that we've been talking with randy sorrels and alex faria soils sorrels sorry uh and you can look them up at uh, sorrelslaw.com that's s-o-r-r-e-l-s law.com uh randy and alex thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for sharing with us uh, thanks for having us ladies and gentlemen of the jury have you reached a verdict thank you for listening to the great trials podcast you can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com we realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process so we've done two special shows one on legal terminology and Yvonne that's going to be hopefully not that boring uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining uh, 
and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial, you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.